Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening everyone and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Sara Sassanelli and I'm the assistant programmer on the adult learning program. I'm delighted to introduce this evening's panel discussion as part of our Provocations in Art series. This evening we will be exploring the erotic, springboarding from our Dali Duchamp exhibition and their experimentation with sexual codes, language and stereotypes dominant in Western society. The panel will explore some of the reasons behind the use of the erotic within art today and will be chaired by Dr. Shahida Barry. Dr. Shahida Barry is Senior Lecturer in Romanticism at Queen Mary University of London and Fellow of the F Forum for Euro European Philosophy at LSE. She was one of the first ever BBC Radio 3 Ju New Generation Thinkers in 2011 and won the Observer Anthony Burgess Prize for Arts Journalism in 2016. And she is currently writing a book on the philosophy of dress. And without further ado, I will ask Shahida to introduce the rest of our panel and to kick off tonight's conversation. Hello, I'm Shahida. Welcome to this panel discussion on art and eroticism. I'm your chair tonight. Now, this discussion could go in so many directions, but in the light of the Dali and Duchamp exhibition, we are restraining ourselves to largely thinking about eroticism in the work of 20th century artists, but with some forays back and forth. I'll be talking to our panellists, and there will be a chance for you to ask questions at the end also. So let me introduce you to our expert panellists. Dr. Alice Mahon, 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 Mahon uh, is a reader in modern and contemporary art history at Trinity College, Cambridge. Her books include Surrealism and the Politics of Eros, and also Eroticism and Art. So I have no idea why she's been asked to join this panel discussion. Um, she's also been involved in numerous international exhibitions on surrealism, um, one at the Tate, at the V&A, um, at Manchester Art Gallery, and I think it might, be, it might be nice to talk to you about your experience staging artworks as well, because you're also in the middle of a, a, a big project, the first major retrospective of an American surrealist called Dorothea Tanning, which is happening next year, so we might prod you for some information about that. Rowan Pelling is the founder of the Amorist magazine, which launched earlier this year for devotees of love and passion. Raise your hands if that's you. Um, lots of us remember her, of course, as the brains behind the erotic review in the late 90s and the noughties, putting the naughty into noughties, in fact, I guess. Um, she's a journalist and a broadcaster. She was a judge for the Man Booker Prize in 2004. And as well as running at the Amorist, she's, uh, she has a column in the Daily Telegraph, and she's the mother of two sons. Um, and I mention that because you took your son to the Dali and Duchamp show recently, and you might tell us what he made of it a little bit later. Atam Faromawi is an artist working in moving image, sculpture, installation, and print. His work often employs technology to explore materiality, touch, embodiment, and the construction of identity. And we're very lucky because you're going to show us some of it um, in a moment as part of our discussion. Atam has exhibited his work widely across Europe and um, also here at the Royal Academy um, with solo shows in Belfast and Amsterdam, amongst other places. And his video work has been screened at the Edinburgh Arts Festival, at the Turner Contemporary in Margate, and as part of the 21st Century Pop Show at the ICA. So I should say that each of you have been asked to select some works to show us, and we'll try and thread those images through the discussion. Um, but we're going to start with Alice, just to try and get some context. So Alice, could you give us a sense of the place of the erotic in Dali and Duchamp, and in the larger context of surrealism too? Okay, well, I was just <laughs> going, <laughs> that's sort of a big, a big uh, ask, but... Um, I'm happy to, to throw out a few ideas about the show, which is fabulous. I'm sure many of you have already had a quick whip around it earlier today. Um, but in terms of Dali and Duchamp coming together, in many ways, as we were sort of saying earlier, they're quite unusual bedfellows. Um, they're not the obvious partners. They're both controversial. Um, and one of the things that brought them together, however, was surrealism. Um, and I'm particularly obsessed by surrealism and its erotic politics. But they came together in the 1930s, specifically through the Surrealist movement and through Surrealist exhibitions, um, and very much through a kind of common obsession with how you might stage desire 
and do it in a way that would make people think differently, not just about desire, but of course about art. So a lot of their artworks are very much about saying, what is art? How do we know and identify works of art as having value? And one of the things they did was bring, if you like, the bedroom into the gallery, the boudoir specifically into the gallery, by actually making us think about how sex could be aestheticized. Um, but they did it in a way that actually reveled in taboo. So uh, for surrealism, for sure, we always say they tried to enrage the bourgeoisie um, in that sense. But it wasn't just a kind of schoolboy prank, it has to be said. It wasn't there just to mock or sort of to have an eatable relationship with parents. It was very much a movement born out of the ashes of war, um, where you had young men who were rejecting often the roles that were being ascribed to them. Um, and where they were coming up with new ideas about how art could change not just our attitude, but actually the great utopian ambition of changing life itself. So they turned to um, the erotic very much as a kind of way of re-energizing life, making you feel, rather than just passively go around looking at works of art. Uh, and the two slides you see here, which is uh, a Duchamp and um, a Dali, the, the Duchamp kind of canonical work which supposedly signaled the death of art, so it depends whether you think that was necessary or not, your attitude. Um, but certainly it was about saying, hang on, we need to stop, think. Um, this work, which was produced uh, in 1917, of course, the end of World War, um, by Marcel Duchamp in exile, again, as a Frenchman in New York, uh, and where he took a domestic object, um, a porcelain urinal, called it Fountain, um, and actually staged a kind of a slap in the face for art and made people think. And you might say when you look at it, it's something that he put on its head so that it's dysfunctional as urinal. Not all of us are familiar with urinals in that sense. But it's what the, the curiosity about it was obviously he signed it Ormut, he dated it, so it, that's the traditional way of ascribing value through the signature and date. But he made it dysfunctional. He created a different shape out of a work which is meant to be intrinsically masculine. And he kind of queered what was a mass-produced object in a way that, of course, to this day, we still pay homage to. People like Sherry Levine and others have paid homage to this. But these are works which um, opened up, you know, not just a can of worms, but actually sort of pulled the rug from underneath what on earth art was. Uh, and it's something that is about urination, right? urinating into something. These were prison low-life urinals, which had a common flush. Uh, these are mass-produced, so there was not something you put on a pedestal. And what he does is he says, this is art. Um, but in the process, he actually says art is about an idea, about choice. Um, and that's where the erotic came into the suggestion of the body and the act, um, but subtly so, if you like. And the other work by Dali, which you see in the exhibition, I mean, both these are staged in the lovely second room on the body in the show. Um, but this is, again, a quintessential example of how a data surrealist artist, uh, in this case, um, Dali, in the, sort of, um, in the 1930s, when he was at the pinnacle of surrealism, when the surrealists were obsessed with objects, takes his lover, Gala's high heel, a red high heel, which is like, again, almost a quintessential fetish object, the high heel shoe. But he doesn't just stage it. He now creates something which is a kinetic ready-made. Um, so he wants, you to, he wants it to move. He wants you to engage with it. And a lot of it's about trickery and expectations. So you might have lots of expectations around what a high heel shoe denotes, particularly if it's your lovers. Um, you know, Freud waxed lyrical about shoes and women's feet and shoes and the Chinese binding and breaking of toes and feet. And that's the irony of a fetish object. It often involves violence. But in this case, too, it suggests sugar. When you look at it, the thing about a lot of these objects is they invite close looking. And that's, that's erotic in its own way, thinking about touching, manipulation. They're now behind glass, but when they first exhibited, they weren't. Um, and you look at it, it looks like sugar, which might dissolve in milk, but actually it's all fake. It's all trompe l'oeil. It's actually marble, which looks like sugar. It's, it's paste, which looks like excrement in the shoe. Um, and it's wax, which looks like milk. So it suggests excrement, mother's milk, suggest um, sort of sexual delight, dipping, changing of solids and fluids and that kind of um, abject sense. And you even have a little um, a, a sort of peekaboo image of sex happening, which again is meant to relate to Freud and the idea of, of actually witnessing somebody having sex and ideally your parents 
to set you up for life. <laughs> uh, and for Delhi, it was all about childhood experience. And the idea of the childhood sexual is something that, again, is launched in a lot of this when you come to know your body, taboos around your body. And for the Suilis, it was about breaking those tra taboos, transgressing them. Um, but as I say, to open up a lot of questions for people to actually have greater self-awareness and at a time when they needed to because the world was in chaos. But, but gosh, that's rich. Uh, um, <laughs> but and also just, I think I haven't been attentive, I feel chastened because I don't think I was attentive enough looking at Gala's shoe. Um, but the trickery, the expectation, the violence, those are all parts of the erotic, the uh, complicated, um, probably a more complicated sense of the erotic than we often facetiously think of the erotic. Was there anything in the exhibition that surprised you, that you looked at, or was cast anew for you in the context of this idea of the erotic? I think one of the key things which is, is um, captured beautifully in the show is the attention to detail. Um, I think often we think of someone like Marcel Duchamp in particular, as an ideas man, as a prankster, as someone who's all about just the concept. And actually the thing that comes across when you look at him, and likewise for Dali, is the fact they can draw, they're doing sketches, they're mapping things out, they're painstaking about their ideas. Um, and that um, often, I think, again, when people sort of feel these are artists who are about the cult of the artist and not about the art process or, or um, skill, I think that's, um, that's exposed in the show, is actually, no, these are people who spend hours, years, um, thinking about how they can build up something which very, is sort of a quick joke, a pun, but actually took a lot of time uh, in the process. And that's, that's sort of something that we should never sort of forget. And the other thing I do think is the fact that a lot of the works with Delhi, it's only when you see them often, I mean, you often see these works over and over in various museums, you see them together, and you see obsessive returns to the same motifs. And that's what's wonderful when you get a kind of a, a collection of intimate works together. And you see that they keep coming back to the image of the nurse and the child, um, the, the landscape of Kadeke in the case of Delhi. So there's recurrent motifs over decades, which remind us too that that's what art's about a little bit. It's not purging, but actually just repeated motifs, or it might be the nude. Uh, mm. In the case of Duchamp, it might be actually sort of almost right up to sort of the sex of his lover. Um, but you see them obsessively, no matter what age, coming back to it, which also reminds you that when it comes to the imagination, surrealism, eroticism, it's not the age you are, but the, it's your imagination. So it's, they're not sort of dirty old men at the end of it all. If you think about Dali with Playboy shoots, but actually the fact that for them, eroticism is ageless and they keep coming back to it. Well, let's keep on having that conversation about the age of racism, and we're going to talk about technique with Adham in a moment. But let's go to Rowan first, because Rowan, um, as mentioned earlier, you brought your teenage son. Is it teenage? Uh, he's, tw he's 12. 12. Oh, oh no, no, he's 13. Sorry, oh. I, I find it. I've only got so two children, but I find it really <laughs> hard to remember their ages. Um, yes, I, I take I take them to um, exhibitions here if I think it's something. And this is a terrible thing to say that they won't be bored by because they're living <laughs> this hyper-stimulated visual age where you know they're always on games and things move very quickly and I've had a few disasters and I thought well let's try this out um, and actually uh, I have some history uh, with Dali as a very influential artist in my life that um, when I was about eight I think I won a poster of uh, Dali's Sleep on a tombola. I mean, can you, can you imagine what was that doing on a tombola? It was at a school fate. And, and, you know, it's that head suspended on sort of poles in the middle of a sort of desert scenario. And I loved it. I really loved it. And it wasn't the sort of thing a child was supposed to like. And I put it up on my bedroom wall. But I shared the room with my sister, and, who was two years older. And... We, it's fair to say, even now, we uh, do not agree on what is a, a great work of art. And I was forced to take it down on the grounds it was giving her nightmares, which I think would have made any surrealist proud. proud yeah. <laughs> um, but not before it influenced me. So I suddenly thought this is going to be a great thing to take my son to see, because Dali, I think, is a good artist, actually, for teenagers, despite the explicit content. Um, in some way, he reacted to it a bit like he did to Mad Max, the movie, actually. There's, some, there's something about that kind of vision of something that is fairly apocalyptic in some ways um, that really appeals to the teenage desire to tear things down. But what I've forgotten as we were going around, and, you know, we'd done one room, moved into the second room, um, and then William Tell and 
Gradiva is that suddenly there's an enormous erection, a kind of splayed naked woman, and it's very miniaturist. <laughs> so you have to go up very close to look at it. It's that moment where, as a parent, you think, you know, what am I going to see? You just think, actually, what the hell? This is, this is an appropriate moment to sort of get into that space and say, this is actually, you know, what adult desire and all its terrifying <laughs> hyper non-reality uh, can be about. What did he but make of it, though? It was fair to say that he came out there and said, that's one of the best exhibitions I've ever been to. So, like so many of us, I, th I think as a teenager... We need to put that on posters. It yeah, like. I think it's the right stage to introduce. I think it's a great, you know, that Duchamp and Dali are fantastic, transformative artists for any, anyone of that age. Um, I've seen his interest about the red shoes, actually. I come a little bit more from the world of erotic writing, but... You know, the, the red shoes is such, a, is such a kind of powerful thing for, you know, in narrative, for the woman putting on the shoes and not being able to take them off, for be, having to dance forever, and you've got the Powell and Pressburger film. And this idea that you're sort of trapped in this realm of being this woman who has to sort of dance for her supper. I mean, there's, there's an extraordinary... Well, sort of that's a good point in the sense that the, the, the fetish is meant to be something apart that represents the ideal whole or the mother and all that. But one of the things the Surrealists did was, if you like, hijack a lot of those ideas. So that instead of trying to heal everybody by yeah. explaining your phobia and why yeah. you're obsessed by toes, they actually played with it. Uh, and they also very much staged women as sexual beings in their own right, which, you know, in this day and age, we would say, well, that's, that's not just laudable, but expected. But then again, if you think about sort of interwar or even decline of mm. population, the idea of you being sort of the, the carer, the nurturer, the mother, the breeder, um, what they were reveling in is very much the idea that women had their own sexual identity and desires, a non-procreative sex, yes. basically. I mean, I, the one thing I'd just say about that is that, it, you know, it's that issue of who's looking, mm. you know, and um, the representation in a lot of the paintings, particularly downstairs, um, that issue of... Who's, who's an object and who's objectified in this image and who isn't, you know? Mm. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll leave it there. The other thing I want to <laughs> say is the introduction of the phallus to your son is maybe healthier than how Dali came to... Although I think the other thing about Dali is, um, you know, someone like Duchamp has perhaps... They're both erotomaniacs, without a doubt, but... Dali's dealing with a lot of secret desires, repressed homosexual desires, and for him, he was phobic about the heterosexual act, as he kind of called it. Yeah, so I mean, Gala because, was on a pedestal. Because his father showed him a bunch of pictures of venereal disease as a child, right? Isn't that the story? Well, Isn't that the myth? it's the fear of venereal disease. He was told if he masturbated, you know, it's the Catholic, mm. he had a very Catholic upbringing, that he would go to hell. So you have a lot of him exploring the taboo around that. Without a doubt, he was repressing um, his own homosexual desires, and he was... He was also, his obsession with Gala, his lover and then wife, I mean, he literally paints her as the Madonna. Oh, she's untouchable. I prefer Rowan's mode of sexual education <laughs> well, as, as a role. Well, uh, but I just on, say Rowan, one thing so interesting because I, um, ed well, I didn't really sort of so much edit because it depended a lot, especially for 20th century art on permissions. So we were a bit restricted. But um, Fiden had just put out a big book of erotic art and I wrote the introduction. Now, I'm not an expert like Alice, so it's very much more of a layperson's view. But I am interested, having been involved in this realm for a long while, that you have sort of centuries and centuries of uh, people sort of expressing, very often repressed by religions and taboos, and sort of an artist using uh, an allegory, and, you know, here we have, you know, a story that's a religious story or a mythical story, but you can see that actually for the artist it is about the woman who's painting, it's about sex, it's about desire. But, of course, in a post-Freud world, and that's what I love about the Surrealists, but it is about anxiety, and I always wonder whether with a lot of these images... I mean, I know we're going to talk about what we mean by erotic, but it's not, it's not the sort of stimulation that goes straight to your sort of viscera. It is something intellectual. It is about wanting what terrifies you. I mean, being confronted by the fact that your own desires may deeply revolt and torment you, which is, seems to me to be the great theme of 20th century erotic art. It's definitely, it's about transgression. And to go back to that issue of, uh, or the image of Gala as the Madonna, uh, you know, as a transgressive image, because wasn't there the, 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 the wasn't it the, the Pope saw the image and, and really loved it, and she's a very, very sexual woman. It's actually just a pun, in a sense, that she's a, she's a highly sexual woman who's uh, framed as the Madonna, and then the, 
the, the Pope enjoys it and, and allows them to mar marry as Catholics. Well, this is you know? true. I mean, Pope Pius, I mean, the, but that's one of the issues which has to be said, actually, about Dali. So he's part of the Swedish movement of the 1930s, but his leanings towards fascism then, and then his subsequent uh, support of Franco, and then his support of the Catholic Church, his obsession with the Pope, mm. he totally sort of went back on a lot of the avant-garde ideas that he was... Um, you know, that made his name in the 20s and 30s. Um, and that was very problematic. So he was ousted for, from the Swedish group because of his politics and his fascism, basically. I'm just going to wheel us back a bit to Rowan, because Rowan's going to give us a broader history before we um, roll back into Dali and Duchamp. But, and you selected a few images to show us. Would you like me to click or would you like to click? Yeah, um, you're probably better at clicking. I'm worried that I will bring up the okay. wrong thing. I, I'm notorious for sort of, I'm you know, knowing, technology knowing. not obeying me. You're getting a bit of a preview of Athens' work in a moment. <laughs> yeah, Should I we start with the sergeant? I was just looking at um, some of the images that were in the book and some of my favourite ones, and I, I thought it was really interesting, actually, when I came to the Fuseli, just for, for me, because this is one of my favourite erotic images, and it also strikes me as being... Uh, having a direct relationship with the surrealist artists, that it's an incredibly strange... Um, image, and obviously you, you'll probably all know Fuseli's nightmare with the incubus sitting on the woman's stomach. And, you know, his interest with the subconscious, with nightmare, with dreams, with what's bubbling up about your desires from down below, seems to me to be really, really incredibly prophetic and modern. We should uh, say for podcast listeners, it's, uh, it's three women? Yes, three, three women and a man. So... Um, and one of the more, I mean, one of those interesting images that uh, blurs the boundaries between erotica and pornography in some people's minds because it's very explicit and, uh, you know, it's a sort of orgiastic scene, really. I love the way the man's head is sort of buried in one of the women's thighs. There's almost a sense that he's going to be asphyxiated and, you know, sort of pleasured to death. And, and I love the way that their hair, I mean, it's a very Fuseli thing, but that he would do these incredibly elaborate hairdos that don't come from the period at all. They're completely from his imagination. And in a strange way, remind me of Louis Bunel's great film, Belle de Jour, where, again, there's a lot of emphasis on Catherine Deneuve's sort of really elaborately coiffed hair or the really extraordinary shine of her patent shoes. And I think this is one of the funny things that fetishism is actually incredibly consistent <laughs> throughout the centuries, what we focus on, feet, hair, these details, and the idea that something that is breaking every societal taboo is what's you know, being conjured up by your imagination, but you know it's coming from a place that other people would like to repress. So I thought it was an interesting contrast with what's happening in the exhibition here. And the erotic is not just genital, then. It's, every, it's polymorphous. It's everywhere, Yes, right? it's, you know, there, there, are no, there are no rules, yeah. obviously. It but, reminds uh, me a little bit of... The only other situation I can imagine of women straddling men in that way is Judith and Holofernes. Yes, very, um, very similar. I, yeah, I, I do like this, that here the man is supine and the agency is all by the women. So that's another unusual thing, it strikes me, um, in erotic art. And Although the other, the other homage is to the, the Marquis de Sade. So this is Juliet, so Fuseli and also Dali are obsessed with um, mm. sadist uh, orgies. Yeah. And Dali pays homage to Fuseli on that basis, actually, because he does a load of images. Some are in the show, which you see, which are very explicit and erotic around the time of the William mm. Tell. So a lot of those were, again, um, illustrations or dialogues with, with Sad. Yeah, so that's where you've the heroine who's phallic, the phallic woman, in that sense. Shall I click you on? Thank you. Uh, which yes. would you tell me when to stop? You um, yeah, I thought it would be it would be wrong to have a discussion about erotic art without having one of Klimt's. I think it's supposed to politely say self-pleasuring you, but I think we can all say masturbating woman. And I've again these these were some of the pictures that I when I first saw them that struck me as being the most just sort of wantonly and kinetically erotic. I think it's really hard not to be aroused by the, such an image because you're, you're sort of privy to something so intimate. And, and I know we're going to talk about voyeurism. It's a big theme with the surrealists. But one of the things that, for me, um, is always interesting and complicated about the best erotic writing and erotic art is how it's framed that you are the voyeur on something intimate that you shouldn't really necessarily be seeing, but you're 
thrust into that place and you're complicit with the art or with the writing when it really, really works. As, I don't know if you know, there's a great book called A Sport and a Pastime by James Salter, and it's a bit like an erotic Great Gatsby. That there's an unreliable. That's such a great tagline. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's an unreliable narrator again, and a lot of the scenes that the narrator describes about a rich friend and his French mistress, who's a waitress, he can't have seen them. They have to have come from his imagination, including scenes of anal sex and all sorts of things. So it was published about 1960. You know, incredibly transgressive for them. But this idea that we're always seeing something we shouldn't and that we're a bit wrong, we shouldn't be looking through the peephole, we shouldn't be viewing her solitary pleasure, makes it very, very erotic. I, I think the remarkable thing about that is that it's such a private scene insofar as she's face down. And so... and. And, you, and her eyes are closed, yeah. and yet you have a real sense of her interiority. And the movement, because the movement is in her fabric, isn't it? The, the, the bedclothes or whatever yeah. it is she's lying I in. I just think it's so much more moving, this kind of quick sketch of his. Same with lots of Sheila's work than, than the finished kind of yeah. great, you know, sort of paintings. There's something so magical. Also, it's very familiar. I think this is, you know, for me... The sort of timeless quality of sexual experience is always fascinating, and I think most women would look at that and, you know, in, absolutely know relate. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to Adham. That was not a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> but Adham, I want to ask you about form and. But was it a good segue? You sound. You bad segue. Bad it. segue. <laughs> but I was going to ask you about really, form. Really, about I how. I really you took pleasure out of those yeah. images, and actually, in a way, it was. It's interesting to me that we were that listening to Ryan talk about them in terms of uh, privacy and not in terms of invasion of privacy or even a violent gaze, a violent look, you know, of seeing someone in a, in a position that's so supine, like you said. So, it's, yeah, that's, again, bad segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, the real segue is about moving, form, because yeah. we've started to talk about sort of the techniques of representing the erotic. So how does the erotic emerge in your work? And would you like me to click, or should I hand over to you? Oh, no, no you click, click away, please. Click. Thank you You're so the much. click mistress. Let's go Thank to... You. I appreciate oh, I've it. gone the wrong way. Oh, could we? We'll get some technical help. But carry on, Adam. Um, I suppose I should say that I um, I work mostly sculpturally, but um, across a, a real variety of media and um, um, revolving mostly around moving image. So this is a, a still from um, my one of my more recent videos, body firming lotion, and um, a, a great deal of the of the uh, moving image work is uh, performance for camera work. Um, the, the my references or how I see the body, how I frame the body, how I edit and shoot the body, come from, you know, artists like, um, uh, you know, Carolee Schneeman with her piece Meet Joy, or uh, the, 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 the final scene from Yoko Summer's self-obliteration film, or even, um, you know, the, 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 the master of performance for camera, Charles Atlas. So it's very much orgiastic group activity. <laughs> <laughs> That's also a very good sell for your work. Um, do you want to tell us about some of the pieces? I, I know this is just a very traduced ex sample of your work, because these are stills and they're certainly more saturated than you might want, but tell us about body firming lotion, because that's a, a video. Well, okay, I mean, this, this, um, this series of work is, is, a, is a bunch of... Um, it's a, it's a, it's a a series of performers that I asked to uh, behave in tactile ways with each other, so uh, massage each other with mud or or, or clay or, or other forms of um, body lotions, or you know, but, um, and then I embedded those into um, simulations of visceral fluids, and I I got to that point um, of kind of. giving multiple things happening at the same time that all undermine each other uh, by thinking about how I was being seduced quite explicitly with uh, by um, images of uh, liquids in adverts, which at a point maybe eight or nine years ago I realised were all becoming digital, and how the forms were, were interacting with the, with the performers uh, and the models in, in, uh, in TV advertising particularly was unnatural and, and also um, kind of undermined the, the, the ways that they were able to emote, you know? And how there was certain disjunctures between the ways that they were enjoying certain things a little bit too much, you know, <laughs> that kind of, that kind of uh, those kinds of pleasure. Um, so I, w I decided. I mean, this is something I often do is where I, you know, I'll, I'll mimic a form, but with the gesture of mimicking it, I'll try to 
push it, um, distort it until it kind of collapses, until it kind of breaks, and its commercial potential is no longer is no longer viable. You know, thinking about maybe how does this affect the body that's in the image? How does this affect the body that was mediated? And how does that image of mediation affect how I'm thinking about my body? You know. So yeah, that's where I was at. But I mean, the kinds of eroticism that I'm thinking about are, as you say, polymorphous and fluid. And um, quite recently, the, the, the most sexual images that I've been thinking about are literary. Um, and I don't know if you, do you know any Octavia Butler, the sci-fi writer? She, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a trilogy of hers that I found really, really useful. And I will bring the microphone to my mouth. <laughs> the, the, it's called the Xenogenesis Trilogy, and it's about um, a young woman called Lilith who is, it turns out, is being rescued by aliens after uh, an apocalypse. And um, it turns out what the aliens want to do is, is interbreed with us to, to rescue us. And it's a very problematic image, but the, the erotic image for me is this non-binary uh, throuple scenario that they set up where there's a human male, a human female, and a, an alien intermediary that penetrates the flesh with these, uh, with these tendrils. And it becomes this kind of holistic, nurturing sexual gesture wow. that isn't so binary and isn't so much about a forceful penetration or a violent I get, that's interesting, isn't that like hocker-sized octopus? I mean, <laughs> yeah. the minute you say tentacles, you think of this incredible erotic image of, I mean, I find that interesting how, how things that are sci-fi are so often take us back to an image from the past, too. I agree, yeah. I, I want to ask you about um, the, the sci-fi, we've had Mad Max as well, we've really gone for the machines, but I want to ask you about inanimate objects, because this is a show where objects become erotic um, conveyors or they absorb some kind of sexuality. So the example I was thinking of, those of you who've been around the show will know, um, uh, it's Duchamp's book with the nipple and it's made of graphite and leather and it's called Please Touch. Mm -hmm. um, but it, there's, there's something very peculiar about the object that becomes, has a, possesses a sexuality of its own. So that, that's um, Please Touch, It and Donnet was for 47 surrealist exhibition, but what's interesting and what you probably it looks a bit now sort of like a sad, jaded foam <laughs> breast, but it's actually an all-American falsy, um, which, you know, um, Duchamp and Enrico Donati came, brought over from New York to Paris. And it's sort of a nice irony in the sense that Paris was supposedly lost modern art in New York, but then they bring over these lovely falsies that all the women were using in New York, shipped them over. There was even an issue where there was a big box that exploded with all these chicken fillets um, <laughs> when they arrived in, in Le Havre or whatever, coming down to Paris. And then that they decided that they didn't look breast-like enough, so they hand-painted them. So they're hand-painted designer breast implant, or, you know, falsies in that sense. Um, and then when they put them on the cover of the catalogue, that's what's gorgeous about it, is that the title was Please Touch, because, of course, in art and exhibitions, you're always told... Don't touch. I mean, that's why your kids and buggies oh. are usually told to stay outside. Uh, it's the idea of touching. So they said, no, do please touch. And if you took up a catalogue, you actually groped a breast. Yeah. So it was more than sort of titillation. It was actually forced engagement with the sexual. And yet it's a cut breast, which, I mean, it's which against black velvet. So there's an element of violence or the idea of a breast falling out of an evening dress, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of little sort of innuendos going on. But one of the things that I was just thinking in terms of Adam's work as well is, is the tension between pleasure and sort of something more threatening. And often when you have an image of something sort of liquefying and, and bleeding onto the screen, um, it's not just that it sort of suggests bodily fluid and ejaculate or whatever, but it's also that people actually are disturbed more by something which is not recognizable. Mm. Um, and at the same time, that opens something that gender disease, free, isn't it? I mean, there's yes, that issue of, it's of becoming fluids. porous, and, yeah, and that actually, that's what I enjoyed so much about the, the Octavia Butler imagery: is that mm. the body becoming porous is an erotic image rather than an issue of disease or, mm. or you know, that kind of venereal issue that yeah. Dali was mm. so so obsessed with. But also, just to return to that issue of touch, um, there's the where, where I start to think about that is um, I, I've used. Uh, 
Laura Marx's ideas of, of uh, yeah. Skin. Yeah, well, skin, skins, but also... Uh, you just, have to just pass that, that for us, because not all of us will know. Tell us what that's about. Well, I was just, yeah, just about to. Um, in her book, Touch, there's this idea of haptic viewing, and the idea that you can delineate a form with your eye and almost touch it in that term, you know, in, in those terms, not just with your hand. And I really like that kind of slippage. Mm. You know, Literally I really enjoy that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to ask also about... We've already touched on this slightly, but the... The falsy, as you elegantly described it, Alice, is funny. And one of the things that I was reminded of is that the erotic is absurd and ridiculous and hilarious as well as sexy. Did you, I, I wondered if that struck a chord for you, if that, and that, that seems to be a particularly surrealist understanding as well, that sex could be hilarious. Yeah, for sure, because Buster Keaton is their favorite, the Swedish favorite sort of <laughs> films, and Charlie Chaplin. Um, so a lot of it is slapstick. Um, it's black humor, largely because it's something sort of sexual and often a little bit violent, maybe. Um, but without a doubt, there was something which was a little bit adolescent and trying to actually poke a finger, again, in the eye of high art. So it's about bringing sort of movies and comics and caricature, advertising, the quick puns. I mean, that's what's been hijacked by contemporary advertising mm -hmm. and art, is the idea that we get the joke, often the dirty joke. Uh, and that's something that they love and they're playing with, yeah, without a doubt. And that's good, that's your, you're laughing. And they, they do play with the idea that if you go to anything that disturbs you, often what people do is laugh, but it's a nervous laughter. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we analyze sort of the response that you immediately start getting. Uh, laughing, and Dali himself had a habit of doing that. I mean, I really enjoy that that idea of you know the the adolescent prodding or, or poking, and it's another issue of transgression, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. another example of that, and it's a, it's another way. And this is something I definitely try to do: is use humour to to uh, as a as a way to provoke some kind of pleasure, but also to most importantly set yourself up in some kind of resistance, uh, a way of pushing back. A, a hierarchy or a received image. I want to ask you a little bit more about response because, uh, and let's get Rowan in as well here, because is the object of a work, an erotic work of art, is it an expression of the painter's eroticism or is its object stimulation for the viewer? I mean, it just depends on the artist, doesn't it? I was thinking about, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm very enthusiastic in many ways about laughing in bed and laughter <laughs> and sex. So I wouldn't want to take away from, you know, this, the enormous pleasure of the visual gag with the surrealist. But something that I often think about is that perhaps in this very jovial sort of post-Freud kind of post-irony world almost that we're, we're so hyper aware of everything, of every gag, you know, you think of... Sarah Lucas and the fried eggs as breasts and all these things that go on. What I'm often searching for when people say, well, what do you think is, what do you think is really erotic? They don't mean what do you think is really funny? What do you think is a great visual gag? They do mean what's not just, um, you know, a cheap pornographic gimmick, a certain amount of money, a bang for your buck, but what really turned you on? What were you arrested by? And sometimes I feel that there's a bit of a paucity of sincerity. <laughs> you know, sincerity just makes you look so po-faced to even <laughs> say it, I want to go outside and shoot myself. Um, <laughs> but, but there are moments for it, particularly in eroticism, because at the moment when you're at you know, that height of intimacy with one lover or more lovers, you know, whatever's going on there, but that is, that's a pretty spiritual moment for most people. That's a pretty sincere, that's about as sincere as life gets. It's an intensity, it's a burn, it's a kind of white heat. And um, I do think that actually we, there's a slight avoidance of it in modern art to go for the, for the gag, for the kind of the other stuff in, instead. And I'll be interested to know what you all think about that when we get to questions, because I find I'm always on a quest to find someone who isn't embarrassed to go straight to the heart. I mean, I was really excited by that idea of or about thinking about that thing that you were talking about before which was um the point where thinking about eroticism as grasping for fruit turned into something a bit more abject and difficult to mm. deal with I, I i've never had any sense of sex being fruit you know it's always <laughs> been like a brutal thing so. how do you feel about sincerity in your work i'm totally sincere but that doesn't mean that i can't laugh at mm. it or self-reflexively for something that's doing multiple things yeah. at once. But is it is it a 
a form of disclosure. I, I, one of the things I'm interested to know it's from you... It's a form you, of vulnerability. Really, vulnerability, yes, exactly. I wonder how much of this work and your work, too, is a kind of act of private disclosure. Are there, certainly in this exhibition, certain works, it occurred to me, perhaps weren't meant to be for our eyes. There's a, a set of Dali drawings um, in Conte Crayon and some pencil drawings of his erotic figures, and they look like da Vinci scribbles he's been doodling, and they feel very private and sincere, actually, mm -hmm. rather than kind of public dem demonstrations of a kind of, I don't know, a, a visible eroticism. Well, I don't, I don't think we should um, presume that they weren't being sincere. I think what uh, Rowan might be getting at, and, and I sometimes come across that when even people, you know, uh, interpret. Obviously, we each, what, if I was asked to pick six works that are erotic for me, they won't be the same as the works that are erotic for you, etc. It's like clothing or lipstick or anything else, no? Um, or the choice of drink. Um, but the point is that for a lot of people, something needs to be almost pleasurable to, to look at, beautiful, to be intimate, so that it depends too if you've got something that seems to be a bit more um, violent. I don't think also, I don't know, the element of black humor is important because I think it's actually about showing what normally we don't, we don't expose. So you're seeing genitalia up close, you're seeing ejaculate, you're seeing images which actually well, the fact is that we do all see them up close all the time. It's yes, just that we, we don't, don't display them publicly. we don't represent them in a painting, mm. in a photograph, in a thing. And that's always the borderline for people um, in terms of how serious they can take that in a work of art. I mean, that was the, the big challenge of the avant-garde, was actually to bring something that was meant to be behind closed doors into the public. Um, so that, I mean, that wasn't just sincere. That actually was open to censorship. It was open to... You know, um, but you can have something that's that's from you know quite violent and upsetting, that doesn't have that element of joke. I mean, Egon Schiller is an obvious example. That sort of expressionism is um, is or Otto Dix, you know, incredibly upsetting but powerful. I, mm. I'm only, I, in fact, I really may, I find that more the disconnect in the sort of second generation, the people, yeah. yeah, the contemporary who yeah. are very influenced by the surrealists, not so yeah. much the originals themselves. But I just. But it was the beginning of that sort of disassociation, I think, from, from expressing something that you're, you're worried. I think people are worried about being thought of as sincere and spiritual. Perhaps that's just me. The <laughs> issue of disconnect and, and um, not so much in relation to sincerity, because I think that it, that's, not, yeah, that's not an issue for me. I'm really, really vulnerable in the, the stuff that I, I, I feel vulnerable. You know, like I'm present in these works physically. Mm. There are images of me doing very sensitive things. You know, so um, but this issue of disconnect is the key thing. You know, um, or disjuncture, or or that that thing of still even now reframing a, an image of something which could be private into a public space mm. is where that that sense of friction or frisson, or, or you know, even even something you know that sense of something salacious is still replicated now in the viewing experience. Vul vulnerability can translate into tenderness, I think, sometimes. And I'm, I'm thinking of the Dali pieces, um, the piece of, the piece with, um, it's the couple um, with their heads full of clouds. Is that the piece, Alice, where their, their, their silhouettes are framed in, in, in gold and gilt frames and their heads are sort of gently inclined to each other. It's all in the neck, other. isn't it? It's yeah, just, yeah. so beautiful. And you can't tell which sex actually the couples are either. Um, but it's wonderfully and surprisingly tender. And I thought, gosh, the erotic is romantic too, right? I suppose, I think... Mm. <laughs> oh, maybe so not. I, I think I find that quite a kitsch work, to be honest. I don't find it very... Um, very exciting, quite in the same way, but also I think often, I think what sort of someone like Dali and Duchamp were doing a lot was trying to buck against the sort of idea of the married couple and the sort of people trapped in a relationship and, and how it had to be those old ideas of romance. Um, I think they sort of were trying to energize it in a different way. Um, they were obviously against the institution of the family and the church, I mean, in, in general. Um, but then also with Delhi sort of thinking that Gala is this sort of creature, which is the femme fatale, I think it just means that he's bowing to her. I mean, he, there's limpness the whole time. I always, I say with Dali, to think of the camembert, the kind of melting cheese. <laughs> and that's his, that's his self-portrait. So, I mean, the vulnerability comes in in him dealing not so much with the sort of the female body or the couple, but the fact that you're getting a hell of a lot of male bodies and, and they might be... 
um, you know, phallic, like you're saying with the William Tell, but a lot of them are drooping and petrified and exploring themselves. They're secretive. They're bringing the confessional into art, and that's that was crucial, radical in its day. And I think that's what's the better part of of a lot of those ideas in today's art. And that opened up a lot for women, because the other thing about female pleasure, I mean, the big thing is that it's not visible. So whatever about a finger masturbating in Egon Schiele, um, the fact is that when the, for a lot of women artists who turned to surrealism, it was because they could think about gestures, a detail, a finger, um, something that was velvet, and how that might suggest erotic pleasure, rather than having to have this big phallic machismo body, um, which is how we traditionally um, prioritize anything erotic. It's all done through a very clear idea of this this masculine armored body. And um, the idea of it being about fluids meant it could be open to both sexes and any sex and play with sex. I love what you've, I'm so sorry, mm. I love what you just said there. So that was just pleasurable in itself. <laughs> but um, what was it interesting for me also is the, the um, that idea that in seeing something, in historicizing something, you reframe it and you cease to make meaning from it in the same way because the context has shifted. And the idea that we have come from outside London where we're at a point where an image of tenderness is now something which presents itself as radical, maybe even. Um, and for me to be excited by an image of ten like a historical image of that I read as tender and no longer as kitsch, you know, that's an interesting thing. Come post, post irony and to yeah. come back to tenderness. Um, I, I want to ask a little bit about um, the reframing of the gaze, because if our conversation has been so sophisticated, it feels very tired and hackneyed to talk about the male gaze. But are we now, is that a tired and hackneyed concept? Are we thinking differently about the ways in which women take pleasure or see paintings and sculpture? Is the erotic configured differently in a kind of, in our contemporary sense of the gaze? Is the male gaze hackneyed and tired now? <laughs> I just wonder how, um, I mean, I think the idea of there being a dominant gender is, is disappearing. It's just clearly disappearing. And actually, what Alice was just saying, I was just thinking about Louise Bourgeois and her kind of tactility, just with textiles and words. And then you see that again in Tracy M. And that, you know, something that's just happening through seeing certain vocabulary sort of projected in lights or, you know, just fabrics. And I think that's a very very feminine way. I actually find Louise Bourgeois' spiders incredibly erotic because of the kind of mothership calling you back and they're kind of, you know, it's like the octopus again with all that kind of clasp that a spider can do with all its legs. They're very, it's a very, very different way of looking at all these issues. And, and, and yeah, of course, the, the 20th, 21st century has been as, as much about that in art as anything. I, Paula Rego is probably my favourite living artist and... Uh, you know, I, I love the I love the tensions between you know sexual violence, but also a sort of certain form of what it means to be a woman. What pressures will you come under? Who will who will try and gaze at you? Who will try and sort of take something from you? And I think her Jane Eyre series is an uh, amazing reinvention of the tensions of the kind of repressed Victorian woman. There's some murmurs of agreement from the audience there. I think that feels like a good moment to turn to them. I wonder if we could take some questions. I just had a question, actually, about, about Please Touch, which, um, on first viewing, I found really interesting because it's, um, I think, a very tender object, but at the same time, it's sort of stark, as, as you say, because it is kind of dissected and it is taken off from the body. And I was wondering if, integrated into the historical context, it sort of refers to a kind of post-First World War idea of um, mutilation, or, or kind of contemporary to that. Well, it's, it's true that the, um, there's sort of a few layers to it, in the sense that Duchamp himself, as you see in the exhibition, is regularly presenting with the body part, removed from the, the lover, if you like, um, whether it's a close-up of uh, a breast or a vagina or something that looks phallic, um, but you're not sure quite what it is. Um, but with um, Please Touch, as a work, uh, it was very much um, an attempt to relaunch surrealism after World War II, when everyone said that actually it was obscene to represent the erotic body. And if you think about um, the atrocities of the war and the final solution, this idea that you would actually return to eroticism, 
when people were either doing social realism, a political manifesto, legible, or of course we had the birth of Jackson Pollock and abstract expressionism. And the idea was abstraction was a much better um, ethical, philosophical, artistic uh, response to trauma, um, which everyone had. And what the surrealists, so they were sort of almost denounced both sides of the Atlantic. Um, in New York, there was a move towards abstraction. In Paris, um, those who'd been involved in the resistance were very much saying, um, you can't come back from exile and try and say that your art still matters. Um, and so in 47, the surrealists relaunched themselves. And what they, in bringing that work, which almost was universal as a catalog, what they tried to do was sort of bring everyone back down to bodies and bodies that matter um, and make people think through what it is to be human and to think about it. But it was seen as a lot of the art after World War II, where it might have been shocking in the lead up to war in the 30s, when you had the rise of fascism. Um, in the 40s and late 40s and 50s, it was seen as obscene socially as well as a subject matter for art because to indulge in the erotic was not what you should do. Um, it wasn't healing in that sense. Um, and I think you're right that the surrealists always played again on the idea of the body as being something which was beyond the physical body you have and the body politic, the nation state, mutilation, amputees. For a lot of people that was also the association. If you saw a, something that was cut from the body in the 1920s, it was because there was a lot of very young men who'd come back from the front who were amputees. Uh, and that is why I think the, the, the potential political subtle message that comes through a lot of the erotic art can't be forgotten, because that was very much where the Swedish were bringing people from all over the globe together, and audiences, and saying art can't be escapism. Art has to sh you know, push you into thinking, my god, what was that about? And in a great sort of space. And that's one thing with this exhibition. There's a nice sense of darkness that was very much part of the surrealist aesthetic for exhibitions, like a cinema. So you're seduced into it, you're watching each other, watching works of art. That sets up a whole, compared to the Academy and Bright Lights, which we have here. <laughs> um, again, going into darkness and watching people watching art and each other creates a sense of, of anonymity about desire and eroticism, but also in, in another way, kind of responsibility in a crowd. That's a very alluring account, I think, and a really helpful question because it's good to have you historicize that for us. I wonder, Rowan, if that means that we've become, that we don't take this, the category of obscenity in the way that it was once taken, that we've become, I'm asking you as the editor of Erotic Review and in its new formation as the Amorist, whether there's a kind of, we've become glib about obscenity and we're suffering from a kind of erotic fatigue. I mean, it's, it's sometimes, um, I mean, I think, but that is true. It's also useful to remember sometimes how recently uh, certain images have been challenged with the threat of obscenity laws. There's, um, I think about 1999, there was a Robert Maplethorpe book, um, at the, I think it's called the University of Central Birmingham, and the vice chancellor offered to go to jail because the, someone had, you know, an art student had reproduced an image on a photocopier or taken a photo, and then whoever had seen that had sent the police in, and they were, this is an obscene book, and he said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go to prison over it, but that was, that was the late 90s. And, you know, we're, we're always in this strange place where something different is considered obscene. I mean, Balthus was a kind of incredibly influential painter. Probably, I think he had the highest prices for a living artist uh, when I was young. And now you can't really put a Balthus picture of those, you know, pretty much prepubescent naked girls who are hugely eroticized. Whatever the technique, whatever you think of him, you don't really see them coming up for auction. So we're always, in, you know, and if you're um, a photographer who takes a picture of your children naked, you know, that someone else judges to be obscene, you're in a huge amount of trouble. We're never, I think, kind of free of this conflict of what is deemed acceptable and what isn't. Although, you know, clearly we've moved on from Lady Chatterley and, you know, would you like your wife or servants to read this? Um, I think it's. I think the tide is there. Actually, we're, in some ways, we're living in particularly prohibitive times. We can see what's happening in terms of the polarizing arguments in politics and American politics, in particular. We, you know, we suddenly, you know, are you going to be able to get hold of, um, you know, sort of reproductive advice? Are you going to be able to have an abortion? 
I don't feel we're on a totally yeah. brave cusp of a you know, fantastic new open yeah. world. No, in fact, I think that's why a lot of young women artists uh, in particular have turned back onto sort of some of the surrealist ideas because the majority of people are saying that we were back in the 30s um, and we're back in those polarized times. There's a lot of um, phobia going on, xenophobia, and um, a curtailment of women's rights over their own bodies. So if anything, the rise of racism is very much a political rise. Um, because it's one way of avoiding censorship, actually, too, is to have sort of subtle codes in erotic art, um, which means that it's not a party political protest, if you like. It's still open, but it means that people are saying we can't, we can't forget the individual in that sense. And I do think in terms of the gaze and politics, a lot of that's about discourse and language and how we've sort of crucified a lot of these concepts. Um, but still thinking about who's looking at who is important and who is the right to look at who. Or and especially, who. I mean, in terms of what me and Rowan were talking about before the discussion, this, this idea of um, the dissipation of, of, the, of the binary genders as, as they existed before, you know, in the late 90s, the idea of a trans person was mm. still a very, very challenging idea, whereas now we're having a much, much more open public debate about that. Mm. And it's um, allowing for, for, for a very uh, a public um, rethinking of... of you know, what do images like Balthus's paintings mean now? And who is looking at these things? And, and um, you know, the, the uh, yeah, Tinigiri And can a work of, of art be kids? independent? We have that about Eric Gill's mm. work because we now know Eric Gill slept with his daughters. That's a hugely unpalatable thought. You know, do we rip down his... And there they are, know, right on, uh, yeah, right on, on the BBC. Stream, yeah. 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 Um, it's very, very challenging. And I, I, and I think this debate will go on, you know, absolutely forever. I, I like the current thing about, you know, should we, should we have sanitary towel adverts that show blood, you know, yeah. rather than strange blue liquid. We, you know, we're yes. right in the middle of these debates at the moment. That's a, a live topic. We've got a question here in the middle of the row on the right. Thank you. Any others? Um, I mean, since we're touching upon, uh, first of all, thank you so much because this is very interesting. And uh, since we're touching upon gender in particular, I wonder if there is anything to say about um, uh, Frida Kahlo's contribution to uh, eroticism as a surrealist and female artist uh, who produced um, some erotic uh, works of art and photographs. I feel like you probably have something to say about that, but do our panelists? Uh, just really quick thing. I mean, I'm going to leave Alice for the art inside. But so uh, about two weeks ago in my office on Facebook, something cropped up and it was an, purported to be an interview with Frida Kahlo in an English language newspaper. I think it was an LA one saying, you know, the wife of, you know, sorry, I've actually forgotten her husband's name, this will be after yeah. one gin and tonic, yeah. Um, you know, that she, um, she, you know, she's allowed to paint, she does her own. You know, it was literally <laughs> sort of like, you know, she does her own sort of interesting painting, lucky her, that was the tone of the entire article. But then I had a long argument with someone, a bloke came on going, oh, well, that's clearly a spoof. And I went, no way is that a spoof. That is absolutely right. Then we tracked down the article, verified it. And again, you sort of think, it's not that long ago that all those artists were consigned to being just the sort of number two to the great male, you know, talent. Yeah, I think one of the, I mean, Frida Kahlo, um, one of the, the Surrealists was one of the first avant-garde, their first avant-garde group really to bring in women. Um, and so she was helped a lot by André Breton and the Surrealists by exhibiting with them. Um, but she didn't want to be paraded as the, the Mexicanida, the little the woman who was going to sort of fly a flag for otherness, if you like. But again, that was more, I think, what's interesting too is when certain women are promoted at certain times. And MoMA, Alpha Bar, turned to Mexico at a time of war and turned to Frida Kahlo, and that helped. The self-portrait is what she was more pioneering at, I think, in many ways in dealing with a lot of religious iconography than explicit erotic um, iconography. Um, but I think the fact that she was so obsessively doing herself is what had a legacy for later artists where you had the right to map yourself, to think about identity and make that sexual. What about the uh, female artists that you're championing at the moment? Maybe you can give us a... So Dorothea Tanning was contemporary with Fida Kahlo, with Leonor Fini, Leonor Carrington. These are a group of fabulous viragos. I mean, I've, I mean, I was seduced by their writing, their art, their life stories. I don't think we should sort of forget that. There's a great allure around these people having pioneering lives, being at the frontier. But with someone like Dorothea Tanning, and this is something that I'm always having to deal with, 
This is where you're dealing with women who are artists, but who are of a generation who emphatically said, never call me a woman artist. Um, and Tanning was one of the first saying, you know, to call me a woman artist, to call somebody a man artist, to call somebody an elephant artist, these words should be outmoded. And that was, you know, in the, in the 40s. Um, but actually often what we're still doing, if you're involved in curating in academia, if you're sort of talking to your 99% female students in art history, is say that actually we're still dealing with tariffs, with quotas, and the fact that women are not represented. They are not represented in museums, they are not represented in exhibitions, there have not been enough big solo shows of women artists at all in Europe, in the United States, anywhere. And until they have a platform, um, we have to keep saying there is a politics of the gays going on. There is a prioritization of male artists. There is a prioritization of a kind of a male perspective. Um, and that is so the, the show I'm doing, Dorothea Tanning, at the Reina Sofia in Madrid, and it'll travel to Tate Modern, is a, is a show about a woman artist, but um, she's just a fabulous, exciting 60 year long career of a, a surrealist, first and foremost. Um, and we have to make it clear that that's, that's, if you like, how we have to approach it. However, the tragedy is, and I think we'd be blinkered if we said anything else, is that we have to fight for them to be recognized. And people like Carolee Schneeman, again, who I work a lot with, they are not getting the same, you talk about auctions, they don't get the same prices. She's only recently been bought by the MoMA in New York. Uh, and therefore, if we don't talk more about the fact that we need more perspectives, on art and identity and sexuality, people are getting one story. But also not to, not to prioritize certain media over others, especially mm. with people like Schneeman, who predominantly worked with uh, performance early on, mm. so, yeah. It is, I mean, it's the, the, her story, history, but we're not getting plurality. Um, and, and eroticism should remind us that that's, that's the great common denominator, really. You know, that's what Duchamp said, is eroticism should be the one-ism that we all agree on. Oh, I think you've made a really good case for that here. Um, any other questions? Um, Alice mentioned that it wasn't appropriate to um, show erotic art after the Great War because it wasn't healing. And my experience is that in the right circumstances, sex can be profoundly healing, emotionally, physically, psychologically. And I want to know if the panel's got any thoughts about whether any artist has explored this, sex as a healing experience. Well, I mean, I, I already kind of talked about Butler's images, and I personally, when I was coming to them, it was because I'd had a road accident, and I'd, I was sort of turning to them to look for ideas of how to make um, an experience like that generative. And, and those images of, of, uh, of an erotic, holistic experience were really helpful. Um, I'm not sure I can sort of directly think of someone I think of as healing, but before, before we were just selecting images, um, I was slightly sad I hadn't chosen one... Um, by the artist Cecily Brown, um, because I think she sort of recasts Eden, and I love the idea that her Eden is sort of orgiastic, very female, very sort of um, textural, the way she puts art on the canvas, and sort of blurry. It's, it's clearly something that's incredibly tangled, and often lots of sort of figures involved, but beautiful. And I, I sort of, I always feel that she's, I, I mean, I, you know, that may not be her ultimate intent, but it always looks to me that we're back in the garden and that we're, we're doing it better this time, that sex is actually the source of, of knowledge and revitalization and bringing people together. Well, I think someone like Tracy Emin is proof of someone who brings very explicit sexual erotic conduct into something healing, although it might be interpreted as almost uh, therapeutic uh, or her dealing with a lot of past memories. But um, I do think, I mean, and I, I hasten to add that the Surrealists obviously didn't agree that um, eroticism and desire couldn't be healing. If anything, it, it brings us all back to a sense of humanity. Um, it's very primitive. Um, it's something that that's, and even their exploration of, of childhood and childhood sexuality was again about the fact that this is something that doesn't, our attitude to each other's bodies um, is something that has to be nurtured from a young age. Um, taboos around it, attitudes to gender. So they would have they would have been the first to say this is something that has a spiritual, a healing. They turned to myth, they turned to magic. Um, they said these are words that sh shouldn't be um, as sort of discarded in the in the twentieth century. Um, they were seen as quite old-fashioned in that sense. Um, but I, I would think that for 
the only my only nervousness is I think sometimes where we as I say treat something when it's about the body or desire as putting it on a Freudian couch and we don't want to heal it um, we just have to use it as a process to open up questions We've opened up our questions. I think we have to close them now. And you, you just warmed up as well. Come and grab us and talk to us at the end. Can I ask you to join me in thanking our organisers, Sarah Sassanelli and the Royal Academy, uh, our panellists, Adham Rowan and Alice, and thank you too for being here. Thank you very much. Join me in thanking our fantastic chair, Dr. Shahida Barry. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.